with this many lecture I'm starting into managerial approaches in my opinion this is the most powerful most effective approach particularly for beginning teachers and I believe very strongly that a managerial approach should be the foundation of how a teacher sets up her classroom and her discipline system if teachers can set up classroom rules and procedures that operate effectively they prevent a lot of discipline problems and that's better than dealing with problems the man who first began developing a managerial approach or who began identifying it and codifying it was named Jacob Koonin he was a professor at I believe the University of Missouri during the 1970s and 80s and he and his graduate students decided to do a research study a very important research study in the early to mid 1970s video video recording technology became portable which is actually sort of uh, sort of a funny thing to say now I worked with video uh, technology at that at that time in fact I made a living running a videotaping lab videotape recorders in the mid 1970s were about this big around and they had two big spools of tape and you ran the tape through some heads that needed to be cleaned about every hour and um, while they were big you could still put them on a cart and roll them around and video cameras were also heavy bigger than they are today but again you could put them on a tripod and move them around so have this technology developing Koonin and his graduate students decided to do a study of classroom discipline they designed the study I'm not sure you could do this today they had principals identify a group of teachers with really good classroom discipline and another group with really poor classroom discipline they took the new videotaping technology into those classrooms and they recorded hours and hours and hours of the teachers with the effective classroom discipline and the teachers with the ineffective poor classroom discipline their idea was that they would then compare the two groups of teachers look at the tapes and they would see how the good teachers responded to discipline incidents versus how the not so good like bad teachers responded to discipline incidents and they'd come up of course with a set of principles here's what you do one two three four here's what you don't do one two three four they did their study they made uh, hours and hours and hours and hours of these videotapes came to the point where it was time to analyze the videotapes and they discovered that they couldn't go any farther with their study because when they looked at the videotapes of the effective teachers there were no discipline incidents to critique there were very very few events in those classrooms that could be called discipline problems nothing happened nothing bad much happened in those classrooms at that point Koonin and his graduate assistant stopped and realized that like many people they had an incorrect assumption or, or concept of discipline in classrooms 
they had assumed that discipline problems are a naturally occurring phenomenon. You have a child, he generates 0.3 discipline incidents per hour. You have 25 of them in a classroom, you get, oh, three discipline problems an hour, and that some teachers have these magic things they do to respond effectively, and other teachers don't have a clue. What they realized is that they had it all wrong, and that what happened is that the effective teachers prevented discipline problems. So they went back and looked at the tapes again, the, ineffective te the effective teachers versus the ineffective teachers. They looked at the tapes, and what they began to realize is that the effective teachers set up and run, ran their classrooms in very important ways. They did things to prevent discipline problems rather than let them happen and then deal with them. From those tapes and subsequent, subsequent research, Coonan and his associate, associates extracted four basic principles of classroom management and discipline. And that's what I'm going to go through right now. If you want to know how to have a calm, effective classroom in which students behave and learn, all you have to do is do these four things. The problem is that they're not tricks. They're not quick tricks. They're not specific things. They're real broad principles. If you follow these broad principles, there's all sorts of specific things you can do. You can do it this way. You can do it that way. This will work. That will work. But it's the principles that make the difference. So here's the secret. If you can do these four things, you will have a good, orderly, well-run classroom. All right, principle number one is maximum time on task. Coonan and his associates found that those effective teachers had their students learning a long time. They were successful in getting students to spend maximum time on task, and I'm going to define that for you. Maximum time on task. Time on task, the learner is actively engaged in the designated learning activity for the maximum time possible during the instructional period. This is what maximum time on task means. Now, some people have trouble with the, the term time on task. They think it has a very uh, bureaucratic or industrial tone to it, like little robots on task. But the task, which is a learning activity, can actually be as progressive or as traditional as the teacher wants. For example, the task, the learning activity, can be um, looking up your spelling words in a dictionary writing down the definitions on your piece of paper, and then composing, uh, picking one definition and composing a sentence with it. Now, it's a very traditional activity. The activity can also be um, using found objects to construct three-dimensional representations of your worst nightmare. 
which is pretty progressive and kind of off the wall and a little bit flaky. You can be traditional, you can be very progressive. It's a learning activity that the teacher has designed. When I go in the classroom, I look and I'm going to see kids on task. In the first classroom, I look around and I see 25 kids who have a dictionary open. And I can see them looking at the pages, turning the pages back and forth, uh, running their fingers up and down the column of the pages, finding the word, copying the definition, writing sentences, and I can see where their eyes are, I can see what they're doing with their hands. And as a teacher, I can walk around, and by the way, I should be walking around, looking over their shoulders, seeing what they're doing, making sure they are, in fact, on task, and helping, you know, giving some suggestions uh, when, whenever I see it's appropriate. That's kids on task. Similarly, I look at that group of students and I see them elbowing each other, passing notes, one kid out of his uh, desk and he's not going to get the dictionary or put it up or sharpen his pencil. And I see kids back here talking. They are not on task. They are not actively engaged in that learning activity. Now, if I go in the classroom with the very progressive art activity, same thing. I'm going to see 25 kids and they've got stuff on their tables in front of them like styrofoam cups and straws and pieces of paper, stuff, you know, found objects. And in this hand, each kid has a bottle of Elmer's glue, whatever. And he's, every now and then he might, the kid might stop and look thoughtful, but basically he's putting stuff together and he's making something that reasonably can be said to be a representation of a nightmare. Same thing in that classroom. I see kids poking each other, flipping stuff around the room. I see a kid staring off into space and he appears to be daydreaming. Those kids are not on task. So this is uh, the, the important thing. Kids are actively engaged in learning activities. A brief sidelight here is that you have to make sure that they are actively engaged. For example, right now you are supposed to be listening to what I say and reading the slides. If you've not done that, you just turn the video on and it's running and you're doing other things that take away all or most of your attention, you are not on task. Now you can be multitasking and doing some things that will not take your attention away. Um, you could be knitting, okay? And many people who are experienced knitters can knit one, purl one, while reading and watching television and listening. In that case, you're actively engaged. If you've let your attention wander for considerable periods of time, then you're not actively engaged. In a classroom, particularly with students who've been in school a long time, if you are lecturing to the class, they can be, every one of them, sitting up straight with an attentive expression on their face and their eyes glued on you 
and the mines are in Pittsburgh. In that kind of setting, you have to do things to keep them on task and to learn whether or not they are on task. Such things as asking them questions, getting answers back, having discussion, talking for small periods of time, and then having application activities. The term for this is checking for comprehension. And in P12 classrooms, very important to check constantly for comprehension and attention, make sure kids are actively engaged. One of the problems with online education, which is what you're doing right now, is that it requires you to be entirely self-motivated and to keep yourself entirely, personally, actively engaged in your learning activities. So think about that distinction between adults and kids. This is one reason why online education is only suitable for mature, highly motivated learners. Okay? So, learner is actively engaged in the designated learning activity for the maximum time possible. In the classroom, that means all learners are actively engaged, or as many as possible, for the most time. Coonan and his associates discovered it in subsequent research something else that's really exciting. This may seem obvious, but when learners spend the most time possible actively engaged in learning activities, they not only behave better, if you're actively engaged in learning activity, you are by definition behaving, they not only behave better, they learn more. Now that may sound obvious, you go, well, gee, okay. But you can go in classrooms where kids are having a good time, kids are not really burning the place down, but you look and you see they aren't actually engaged in any kind of meaningful learning activity. In classes like that, guess what? Kids don't learn a lot. And if they have a minimum of engagement in learning activities for 12 years or 16 years, the outcomes are not very good. They don't learn a lot. I often ask my students, uh, in high school, did you have classes, one or more classes where, eh, you didn't, like I said, you didn't escape, you didn't burn the building down, you didn't scream and yell, maybe you just sat and talked, but you, day after day, didn't learn very much. And they invariably say yes, and they'll tell me what the class was, okay? So, in order to learn, kids must be actively engaged in learning activities. You can find classrooms in public schools where students spend as little as 10% of their instructional time actively engaged in learning activities. At the other end of the spectrum, you can find classes where students spend about 95, 90-95% of their instructional time engaged in learning activities. People fuss all the time about, oh, how can we improve our student scores on their TCAP math tests? Teach more math. 
have them spend more time actively engaged learning math. Guess what? They learn more math. Okay? Maximum time on task. By now, you may be understanding that the most powerful, most valuable resource a teacher has is instructional time. And good teachers, effective teachers, get the most learning possible from that valuable, valuable instructional time. Now, principle number two is related. It's the opposite. Minimum time in peripheral activities. If you're going to have the maximum time for kids to be actively engaged in learning activities, whatever those designated learning activities are, you need minimal time, minimum time in peripheral activities. Peripheral activities are any activity that is not a designated learning activity. So look in a classroom, watch it, observe it, take out all the learning activities, and what you have left are peripheral activities. Now some peripheral activities are essential. You have to do them. Um, taking role, you're required to do it. Um, schools impose on teachers a lot of bureaucratic stuff, like you got to take role, okay. You got to turn in some kind of lunch count. You have to sell photographs. You have to take up money, whatever, da, 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 da. Those you have to do, okay? But what you want to do is spend the least possible time in them. There are other kinds of peripheral activities besides school routines. Um, giving out and taking up materials, um, taking up assignments, um, other categories. Discipline incidents are peripheral activities. They're not learning, act, you know, kids are not engaged in learning activities. Misbehavior, goofing off, cutting class, those are all peripheral activities. Uh, you get maximum learning when you minimize, minimize time in those things. Schools also in my opinion, waste some learning time. Um, a lot of assemblies that really don't, and I'm not opposed to assemblies, but a lot of time out of class for activities that really aren't educational. Uh, one of my favorite, un, unfavoritest is things like pep rallies. Um, there is some value in activities that build school spirit. There is some value in activities that um, give kids a little break for some entertainment. Um, taking the fifth grade class to the circus. Well, all kids need to go to the circus. Um, and you can build some instructional activities around the upcoming trip to the circus. But schools need to be really clear about the value of those activities when they take kids out of class. And by the way, those activities often rev up uh, kids emotionally and cause more bad behavior. Again, schools need to really seriously evaluate the value of those activities because they are taking them away, you know, that valuable, valuable instructional time. You will also find in many schools a lot of interruptions and a good school and a good principal will understand that they need to 
minimize and manage certain kinds of interruptions. Um, one that teachers typically hate is the announcements on the public address system. The, uh, at some point, you hear the school secretary, she'll come right in the middle of your instruction and she'll say, uh, is so-and-so going to show we And it interrupts your instruction. All the kids get distracted and off task. You have to deal with whatever that issue is. And it may be as simple as, you know, send Robert Smith to the office. His mother's here to pick him up. Your class is completely off track and then you have to go back. Uh, or announcements right in the middle of your instructional period. Uh, some stupid, forgive me, announcement about, I don't know, selling candy for the band. Effective teachers, I recommend that you wait until you get tenure and then you all get together and you tell the principal of your school to knock that stuff off, cut it out, uh, do something else. If there have to be announcements, have them the last minute of an instructional period. Just delay them. If somebody's, uh, you know, mama shows up and wants them right then, it is probably less disruptive to simply send uh, an aide to the classroom to uh, call the child out and take him to the office. Probably far less in, uh, disruptive than the PA. Uh, I have also seen schools where people felt no compunction whatsoever about just walking into a teacher's classroom, walking up to him or her in the middle of class and talking to them. I think uh, professionals in the school need to communicate. Look, if I'm teaching, you don't interrupt me. I'll talk to you later, be glad to talk to you later, but you don't march in my room right in the middle of instruction, interrupt me. If you do that, it had better be an emergency, okay? Preserve that precious instructional time, minimize everything else. All right, here's one way you get that. A very important way you maximize instructional time and minimize peripheral activities. Clear systems, procedures, and expectations. Classrooms that run like clockwork. Maximize instructional time and minimize time spent on peripheral activities. You have to take role. There's no one right way to do it. But what you do is you develop a system or a procedure for taking role in the fastest, easiest way possible. You get the job done with the minimum loss of your precious instructional time. A simple example, you can go in classrooms where the teacher takes role by calling each student's name, you know, Abbott here, Barker here, Costello here, on through the alphabet, write it down, put it on a piece of paper, um, and give it to someone to take to the office. That wastes a lot of time. It may be necessary on the first day when you don't know your students, 
But if you take the time, here's a concept, take the time to learn to recognize your students. You can take role visually before class ever starts, particularly if you have assigned seats. Uh, it's not very progressive, it's kind of old-fashioned, but there's some real advantages in having a seating chart and assigned seats. You simply look at who's not there and you take your role. You walk to the door, you put it on a clip, and you have trained the aide from the office to come by and take that report quietly without interrupting your class. And you get your role taken easily, quickly, before class even starts, no muss, no fuss. Takes maybe 30, 30 seconds after the door, uh, after the bell rings and you just walk to the door. With younger kids, uh, teachers often have a procedure where the kid comes in the room and does something automatically that enables the teacher to take role. And again, this is not right or wrong. Uh, you don't want a system that's so elaborate that it takes a lot of your time. But the elementary student walks in, he goes and takes the, the clothespin with his name on it, and he walks over and puts it under brought lunch. Okay, you know he's here, you know he brought his lunch. You have to remember as, as a teacher, sometime during your free time or at the end of the day, to move all the clothespins back, okay, before the next day. So you got a little system, you have to do a little maintenance on it, but it minimizes the time you spend in that peripheral activity, maximizes the time you have available for other things, such as actually teaching. Okay, clear systems, procedures, and expectations help you minimize the peripheral activities and maximize learning time. Here's another example. You take up student papers, you grade them, you need to give them back. There's no one right way to do it, but you can use the principles of a managerial approach to critique and evaluate various methods. If I stand up in front of a class of uh, 30 high school students and I call each name and then hand the paper, they, each child comes up and I hand them the paper, then I call the next one and they come up. Number one, it's going to take a long time. So I am minimizing my instructional time and maximizing time in a peripheral activity, which is exactly the opposite of what I ought to be doing. I am also leaving 30 high school students, essentially, well, 29 at a time, essentially unoccupied. Only one child has a task. 29 students have nothing to do. You don't have to spend much time in classrooms to understand what 29 unoccupied uh, children start doing. Noise, misbehavior, energy bills, rocking and rolling, socking around. Eventually, you've got a class that's out of control, okay? Because you violated the basic principles of good classroom management. Clear systems, procedures, and expectations. At any given moment, if you have clear systems, clear procedures, clear expectations, at any moment, kids know these four things in your classroom. First of all, they know what they're supposed to be doing. What am I supposed to be doing? They either know or cannot maintain that they don't know. They know what they're supposed to be doing. 
They know how to do it. They know how to get help. If I'm working on this independent seat work and um, I come to a problem I can't do, what am I supposed to do? How do I get help? Do I raise my hand, make sure the teacher sees me, and wait quietly? Or do I raise my hand, make sure the teacher sees me, put my hand down, and go on to another problem? Or do I just skip it and go on to another problem? Or can I ask the person next to me for help? Is that allowed? Or do I have a designated group leader and I can get up and walk to the group leader and ask her for help? Or do I turn over a, a little red card, little card on my desk to the red side, meaning I need help, and keep on going? Do I go to the board while the teacher is working with a reading group and write my name under needs help? What do I do? The point is I know what to do if I need help. Then finally, the student needs to know what do I do next. With many activities in a classroom, students are going to finish at different times either individual independent activities or group activities, you can count on students completing them at different times. This group will get finished before this group. Uh, after a while, you can pretty much predict which of your students will finish activities first. Um, what do they do next? The most effective thing many teachers do is to have either a series of assignments you do assignment one, and then when you finish that, you start on assignment two. If we finish the period before you finish assignment two, you can take it home as homework. That gives you a one, two, three kind of series. Or you can do assignment one, assignment two. Assignment three is kind of optional. When everybody, when most people have finished, I'll stop the class, we'll come back together, we'll do something else. And the next time you need something to do, you can pick up assignment three where you left off and keep on. That's another approach. And another approach is to have filler activities, uh, things that are sort of optional, educational, enjoyable. You finish assignment one while we're waiting for everybody else, you can go over here and work on the computer or, uh, you know, designated educational activities on the computer. Or in my classroom, I require you to always have a library book. And so when you get to a point where you finish activity, you pull your library book out and you can start reading on it. Whatever works, but the point is that kids have something to do when they finish, they know what it is, and they can move right into the next activity. Often, if I go into a classroom and I see disorder, uh, I see kids not actively engaged, I ask these four questions. Do these kids know what they're supposed to do? And it's amazing how often in classrooms the answer is no, they really don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Do they know what they're supposed to be doing? If so, do they know how to do it? Do they know how to get help? Many kids, they run into that problem they can't do, they'll just stop and sit there. Do they know how to get help? And then do they know what to do next? Okay, clear systems and procedures. 
The fourth principle is clear student accountability systems. You got minimum time, you got maximum time in instructional activities, learners actively engaged in learning, minimum time in peripheral activities. You've got clear systems and procedures so the class works like clockwork and just moves along. And then you have clear student accountability systems. Now what accountability systems are anything, any kind of system that communicates this important fact. The teacher first knows and second cares. Got to have both of those. The teacher knows and cares or the teacher will soon know and the teacher cares whether each student, you as an individual, is behaving, working, doing what you're supposed to do, and learning. Okay, this is really important. I ask my students, think back to your high school career. Did you have a class in which the teacher appeared to not care whether you were behaving? And very often my students will say, yeah, he just sat there and watched us. And you go, what? The teacher just sat there and watched us. The teacher appeared not to care whether they were behaving. And if they weren't behaving, they certainly weren't working. And if they weren't working, they certainly weren't learning. Okay? Anything that communicates the teacher cares and either knows or will soon know whether you're behaving, working, or learning. Um, here's, here's a negative example. Um, if you take up homework all the time and you never look at it, you never grade it, you never record it, and or you never return it, students figure that out pretty quickly. They see you take all those stacks of paper with the rubber bands around them, um, you know, clean out your desk, walk over, take the rubber bands off because you're thrifty and you dump them in the trash can. They see that. They know you don't really grade or evaluate their homework. Um, if you assign homework but you never take it up, they figure out pretty quickly they don't have to do it. If you assign homework but you only take it up now and then on kind of a random basis, an immature child at home goes through a real quick thought process. Should I do my homework for tomorrow? Nah, she won't take it up. Well, she might, but the odds are she won't, so I won't do my homework. So kids will play the odds and they won't do their homework. If you want kids to actually do homework, it's very simple. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in detail later. You sign homework on the first day of class. You sign homework on the first day of class just a little bit so that there will be a high chance of compliance and then you check it or you take it up depending on what it is on the second day and you give those little pointsies or whatever you do for, for positive reinforcement and then you assign homework a little bit the next day and you get kids into the habit of, taking, of doing your homework. They know you're going to check it and they know that they need to do it, you do not have to kill yourself. For example, most homework assignments in P12 education, very simple to check very quickly. 
Often a teacher can walk around the class, you know, when you come in, put your homework on the side of the desk, and at some point where we're doing independent work, you know, the teacher walks around and goes check, 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 check. Also, most K-12, P-12 homework is not hard to grade. If students know that you look at it frequently, very frequently, you take it up, you look at it very frequently, you uh, notice whether they've done it or not, and you will simply give a check or not, and you occasionally grade it, they will be more likely to do it. Um, again, most P12 homework is not real hard to grade. You can just zip through, you know, 10 math problems real quickly. And many times you can read a two-page little essay really quickly. You can make yourself do it quickly. You can give those grades back, and you can reinforce doing homework. You can also pretty regularly use homework, like math problems, whatever, as the basis for activity during class. Um, people get into all sorts of silly disputes. You can exchange papers and have kids grade each, other pa each, or each other's papers as you go over the assignment, which teaches and you get some kind of accountability. Now you get the occasional upper middle class mama protesting that, you know, the other kid sees her kids work and that's some sort of privacy problem. If you have to deal with that, deal with that. But in most classrooms, that's perfectly okay. It's going to be acceptable, and you're not going to get any flack from it. Clear accountability systems. Now, an example I use. Um, frequently, people will say, well, you shouldn't have to give grades or check, you know, check homework or do these accountability systems. If you would just um, keep that natural joy of learning alive in children, so that uh, children learn for, you know, because of their natural joy and teachers and schools manage to beat it out of them. I'm an adult learner. I'm highly motivated. And I had, in 1987, I bought a correspondence course. It was a course I really wanted to complete. It was a course I really, it was a college course, and I wanted that credit on my transcript. I did not get very far in it, and I never finished it. So if it just depends on motivation and the desire to learn, why didn't a mature, self-motivated, highly competent learner finish a correspondence course? And the answer is that I did not have any accountability systems. I was not accountable to anyone else. It was just really easy on any given day to not pick up those materials and not proceed on my correspondence course. The same thing for college students. I ask college students who are adults who presumably have some motivation, particularly if they get to a 4,000, 5,000 level course, have you ever had a college course in which um, there were very few assignments? Maybe you had a midterm, very few tests, maybe a midterm and a final, and one big research paper that was due the last day or the last week of class. And I say, how many of you have had a class like that? And all the hands go up. And then I ask them, okay, you had this big paper due the last day or last week of class. When did you start working on it? And many of them will tell me the night before. 
okay, you know that if you wait until the night before to do that paper, it's going to be a big mess. Why did you do it? And we discussed that. Well, same sort of thing. There's nobody making you go to the library, do this, do this, do this, do this. Too easy to put it off in a busy life because there's no accountability system. And so you run around screaming and yell at the last minute and try to throw something together and turn it in. Then I asked them, what could the professor have done to help you do what you ought to do? They always come up with the same thing. Well, after a few days, uh, turn in your proposed topic and have the faculty member, the professor, give you some feedback. Well, that's a good topic, but it's too broad. You need to narrow it down. How about this? Um, that's a really good topic, very interesting, but I don't think you're going to find very much on it. There's just not a lot available. Why don't you see what you can find, but just in case, develop a backup topic. And let me see that, and let me review that. And, you know, don't go too far without finding that kind of feedback. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, turn in some uh, sources you found, maybe six or seven articles or whatever, and let me look at them. I know that's not your complete list of sources, but let me just see. And what that means is that the night before you have to actually do a little bit of library work online or go to the library and get some sources to turn into me, but at least I've made you do it. Then a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, you've got to turn me in an outline. Give me your topics. Okay, then first draft. By walking students through that process as a teacher, that accountability process, a couple of magical things happen. Number one, I get better papers. I will get better papers from my students, which makes me happy. Okay? Reading better papers is much more pleasant and takes less time than reading worse papers. So my life as a teacher will be very, very much improved by the accountability procedures. My students' grades will be better, and they will be happier because they've done a better job. So accountability systems do not be fooled. They're really important for all learners, and they help teachers and students be happier. Okay, you have four basic principles of classroom management and discipline. They're very powerful. They work, and in subsequent mini lectures, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how you set up those clear systems and procedures, how you lock them into place, and how you get a good classroom up off the ground and running, operating well, fast. Take care. See you in the next lecture. Okay, very good.